What's up, everybody? This week, Greg and I get together to talk about an album with a strange recording process and even deeper lyrics. New Adventures in Hi-Fi by R.E.M. That and a whole lot more is to come, because maybe, even with annoying sounds, songs can be fantastic. Welcome to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, this, actually, we're going to go ahead and uh, spoil the uh, chicken before we get started, I guess. This is our second attempt at recording this one because of technical errors. But anyway, it is good to be back. I'm joined by Greg. Greg, how are you, man? Hey, what's up? Uh, and uh, how has your week been? <laughs> uh, pretty topsy-turvy so far. It's just, uh, you know, holidays are coming, work's picking up in some respects. Uh, you know. I had a nice, nice Saturday where I got me some donuts. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still haven't, I still haven't had my victory donuts yet. I got to do that really soon. Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, we're not going to tell you. We're going to let you figure that out on your own. Do your own math. Uh, <laughs> but before we get started, guys, if you want to check out what we're doing and what we're up to, go to becausemaybenetwork.com. Also, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. All of that's in the podcast description or on the video where you know you choose to watch it. And of course, if you were online check out uh everywhere you would find good podcast bed cup podcast everywhere in between and of course check out youtube as well that's where we're all at and again all of that is on our website so rem yes what would you say right the rem were the godfathers of alternate music in the united states i think it's a i think it's a of fair fair argument um they uh you know they that kind of like grassroots sort of um following they they kind of yeah. pioneered that in a lot of ways they toured their asses off for a long time um put out put out a lot of music and they and they like um uh the goo goo dolls was another band like them where they they cranked out multiple records and just shop themselves by touring everywhere playing everywhere they could so yeah they were I, I would say that they're they're like the innovators of sort of the indie yeah alt alt indie i know the lines are kind of it's kind of blurred over the over the decades as to what indie and alternative mean but yeah i mean i i think you could you could safely argue that for sure a friend of mine told me that he um what his theory was is that alternative music is made by major labels whereas indie music is independent labels. Well, that makes sense because by namesake, indie, independent. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the uh, moniker from it. But uh, yeah, pop, I, I think that's fair. Popular music and alternative music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, R.E.M., I mean, for those who don't know, R.E.M. were a great, great band in, well, in all years, but they, like, started their um, life as a recording artist before I was born. Yeah, the, they've been around for a long, long time. Around for a long time. They've been and making music since what, like the early '80s or somewhere around there. I think their first song was either '82 or '83. So yeah, right around when I when I was born. So yeah, I mean they've been doing it for a while. And they've released, uh, I think the number was 13 as the final number that they released albums for. They split up, ranging from uh, country rock, alternative rock, as we call it, um, uh, experimental. Right. Just they ran the gambit of everything. And today, what we're going to be talking about is one of the, I don't want to say experimental albums, 
but one of their albums that well it's experimental on how it was recorded if that makes sense yeah yeah they took a they took a um, different approach on this one the way the a way differently than like a traditional album would be cut yeah i um, mean like choose it's one or the other if you cut an album it's either live or studio and they kind of had a little bit of fun with it in that regard yeah, and they didn't record it live, like with the full audience and the crowd noise and everything like that. This was like a uh, sound check album for like a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but and, but nonetheless, cut live. Yeah, quote unquote live. Now the yeah. reason, now the, the, I I know that I knew this album being recorded somewhat live, right? And I yeah. wanted to cover this because of the unique circumstances around the recording, and I thought that would have been the most interesting thing about this album was how it was recorded. Yeah, for and, sure. Yeah, it's unique. But digging into everything, and that is the least remarkable thing about this album. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but um, at least like from the engineering perspective, though, that is yes. pretty interesting. At least, yeah. So. I mean, that, that's what drew drew me towards it to begin with. We are talking about REM's new adventures in hi-fi that was released in 1996. That was a top album in the UK, number two on the Billboard charts, and sold about three million copies worldwide. It was produced by REM and Scott Litt, who's a very, very good producer. Um, probably one of the best in the quote-unquote alternate scene. Um, and, of course, this is an album that's like alternate rock, folk rock, um, country rock, and just, again, it, it, experimental. Old rock, a little experimental rock. Yeah. yeah I mean, they, they get a little spacey. They get a little jazzy. They get a little, uh, they get a little uh, Dylan. <laughs> Two yes. as well, yeah. There's, I got some notes over here. There's like two or three different songs where he just straight up goes into, um, uh, new, uh, like New Test Leper and a couple of them. Yeah, he just like totally just goes into this Dylan ramble. It's great. Yeah, and and the great thing about nobody, can, I mean, he, Dylan ramble is great, but Michael Stipe is is a good rambler as well. Oh yeah, um, I mean, he puts his own. It's it's not like a. It's, like a yeah. it's not like Zeppelin. Greta Van Fleet, like it's it's like uh, Socrates and Plato. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like did his own took took what he had from that and did his own thing. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and that, and that's what, like I said, that's one of Michael Stipe's hallmarks. Um, there was a song that he did called "Country Feedback," and how REM writes and records songs was very very interesting up until this point. Um, everything I found out from REM fans, um, a couple of couple of my friends back home, very very big REM fans. Um, they were they kind of recorded it in a way where the band would would write music and record music and then like over like a couple of day period they'd invite michael stipe in to listen to what they recorded yeah and he'd write the lyrics for what it was and a song called country feedback he literally walked into the, the vocal studio with no paperwork super depressed gave one tick walked out halfway through the, the, the last chorus and it became one of Ariane's most beautiful songs that they did. I mean, so, but I mean, Ariane did have an unusual story going into this album. Um, they stopped touring in 1990, which was like horrible, you know, cause as you said, Ariane basically shot themselves around the country, you know, we want to be this, we want to be that. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're not, we're not performing anymore. And, they, had a, they had a lot of roadblocks along the way. They had a lot of um, what, uh, speed bumps and stuff like that, too. So, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, like, okay. They, they, recorded, easy. they recorded two albums called Out of Tom and Automatic for the People. Now, Out of Tom is memorable for shiny, happy people and losing my religion. And yeah. uh, Automatic for the People is probably famous for Man on the Moon and Everybody Hurts. 
I mean, there's other songs on there too, but those are the, the two main from each album, right? That everybody knows. Yeah, the big ones, yeah. And they wrote both albums as a way of dealing with the fact that they were now 30, or in their 30s, and the end of a band called The Replacements. Now, I'm going to hold my hands up. I've never heard of The Replacements. Is, is that something that, that you got, you, you've come across? Because I, I, uh, I haven't come across it. You know, I've heard the name, but I, I, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with uh, the group personally. Um, I, I keep wanting to think it's that band that Matt Sharp, the old bassist from Weezer, started, but I know that's okay. wrong. I think it's the refer- – no, that's – Anyways, but yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not familiar with with that per no. se. So, and apparently, they were like the band, one of the band's biggest influences, right? And you know, they released an album then in 1994 called Monster. Now, the thing about Monster was during the time between Automatic for the People and Monster, two of Michael Stipe's best friends had died. Kurt Cobain had been murdered by Courtney Love. And uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously joking. Kirk, Kirk Cobain, you know, Kirk Cobain took his own life, unfortunately, but I always like to say that officially just to get, just to get a response to see, see how long I can keep the straight face for, uh, <laughs> but uh, Kirk Cobain, uh, took his own life and river Phoenix, uh, had a, what is alleged a drug induced seizure outside of a nightclub. Yeah, overdose. Yeah, but he overdosed and he never recovered. Yeah. These, these two guys were very, very, very close friends with Michael Stipe. And they were also um, both uh, very talented, very successful, and very young. Yes. They I were both 27 years old, I believe. Yeah, they, they're part of the 27 club. Um, yeah. So everybody thought that Monster, this rockier, louder, angrier album that R.E.M. did, was they a morning album? Michael Stipe got all of his mourning, all of his sadness out. And that was just song, the anger. Yeah. And there, Maybe, was a song, yeah. There, there was a song called Let Me In that was recorded on this album that was recorded on a guitar that uh, Kirk Bain gave Michael Stipe. Okay, wow. Cool. Now, my question to this is, can Michael Stipe play guitar left-handed or do they have to restring it before they used it? But well, that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> well, I'll throw this out there um, just for, you know, just to put it out there, Kurt was known for um, using right-handed guitars and really? restringing them left-handed. Yeah, he did that yeah. all the time because he would he would get frustrated and smash his guitar, and then you'd have to put like build another one, put it together, or buy a pawn shop guitar. So most of the time, he would get a right-handed guitar, flip it over, restring it, readjust the bridge so it would play left-handed, and he'd play left-handed. Wow. So it could have been a right-handed guitar that he could okay. actually be played. Who knows? But yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I, I knew. I knew like a lot of left-handed guitar guitarists do that. Yeah. But, well, I mean, out of convenience, because there's right-handed yeah. guitars everywhere. And and the thing is, even though he disliked the fame, you know, Kurt Cobain had enough money at that time to afford some of these, you know, higher-priced instruments, shall we say, whether he wanted yeah. the same sound or not. You know, that's he why had his own. Yeah, he had his own like signature series at that point. Yeah, and so, that's I why mean, it didn't. Yeah. That's why it didn't click into my head that he might have gone to a pawn shop, got a right. You, you know what I mean? Because he, he yeah. still lived frugally, even though he was a multi, 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 multi millionaire. Yeah, he he. You know, uh, it, kind of in the early days, in the bleach days, like in their grassroots days, kind of like REM when they were, yeah. you know, touring Europe in a van uh, with like a bunch of stinky dudes that they barely knew. Um, yeah, that's what would happen. That. Uh, there's times where the guitars got lost or broken or smashed. So he became very, very resourceful. He would Frankenstein guitars together and stuff like, you got to make it happen. You know, so and guitars like that also sound better, <laughs> I think. 
more personality for sure but yeah, yeah um so who knows that it could have very well could have been a right-handed guitar the way kurt operated he he was very resourceful to say the least okay I, that, that that makes sense that makes sense um but the, the the reason that's important is they went on tour for the first time in four years to tour the monster album and a lot yeah. of fans a lot of fans were excited the band themselves were excited because they didn't want to do the Beatles route of we're never going to win again. They just needed some time off because they had been touring constantly since the the early eighties. Yeah. And this was 1990 at this point. So eight years of constant touring, we're going to take some time off, but we're going to still make music. Well, yeah. this tour did not go any way that the band wanted it to go. Now the shows themselves were some of their best work up to that point, but the circumstances surrounding a lot of these gigs Michael Stipe, Mike Mills, the bass player, and Bill Berry, the drummer, all ended up in hospital during this tour. Yeah, it was some serious, serious stuff, too. I mean, I remember the the Bill Berry, uh, uh, the aneurysm thing on, um, on uh, I think, Tabitha Soren dropped it first. That takes you, takes you back at all, people. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember all those hurdles that they, they encountered in that tour. Yeah, and actually, Bill Berry after this album like quit the band because at that point he was like, "I just, I, I really couldn't care less if I pick up a set of drumsticks ever again." And so he became a hay farmer. I mean, that's a heck of a career trajectory right there to be drummer for one of the biggest bands in the world to hay farmer. It can I mean, it, it can burn you out, man. Um, and. <clears throat> you know, I, I've, I've got a friend who was in a very successful band and I'll keep his name out of it. But anyways, they're, they're a band that tours a lot all the time. And he just basically got tired of touring and he's like, uh, you know, I, I still love the music and I love the band, but I just don't want to tour anymore. You know? No. So he's still involved with the band and like writing and producing and stuff like that, but he doesn't tour with them anymore. But you know, it, it can, it can, you know, 10 years of that for him and wore him out, man. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, you know, like two hundred dates a year will will wear you out, and that's what big time bands do. Yeah, I you mean know? it's 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 one of those things. I'd love to have had that schedule, but I can't imagine that schedule. You know what I mean? It's you know it's it's really really hard on you physically and mentally. And there are a lot of uh, references to that in this album, which we'll get to here in a minute. But um, one thing I said about one thing about REM is what was they were like the kings of college radio, right? They were, yeah, yeah. You know, they were considered the college radio kings and everything like that. Well, on this tour for Monster, they kind of toured with the band that would take their place as the kings of college radio. They were touring with Radiohead. Yeah, and that's and, insane to me that they that Radiohead opened for them. I mean, a lot of big bands like now, anyways. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like um, there were there are a lot of big bands who opened for bigger bands. You know, it's it's really really weird. Like um, in '97. A lot of people, the metrics and my own personal opinion, believe that Oasis were the biggest band in the world in 97. They were opening for U2. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Well, yeah, but U2 had been around so long. Yeah. The Joshua Tree and um, uh, that tour, that huge stadium tour they did in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they've been doing some pretty big stuff. But yeah, that's that's pretty crazy right there. <laughs> but um, Radiohead were recording at the time an album that recorded a bunch of songs that became the Benz, right? And that's my favorite Radiohead album. I will, I will say that right now. I love the Benz. I think it's fantastic. Um, and what they were doing is they were jamming out the songs that would become the, the Benz. Right. And as they were jamming it out, they were recording it. 
Now, a lot of those recordings didn't make it to the Ben's album, but some of the tracks did, if that makes sense. Like this guitar track might have made it, this drum track, yeah. you know. And they, the band picked up on that idea and were like, okay, we can do something like that. And then kind of on the tail end of this tour, they started, you know, writing, writing lyrics, writing stuff. This has got a much more full sound because it's not just the four guys in the studio having to overlay stuff and overlay stuff. This has got their touring pianist and their touring guitarist and their touring percussionist and everything in there. So they've kind of got extra ideas to bounce off and it kind of musically, this is probably the best album REM ever did. And it, well, energy wise too, like there's, there's something to be said about um, playing on a stage Cause I've got, I've got good, uh, good, a bit of studio experience, maybe not as much as stage, Yeah. but, but sometimes trying to capture that same sort of feel in the studio, it's, it's really tough. And that's one of the jobs of the producer is to get that same energy. So the point being, if they're recording these cuts, even if they're all, like, it's, it's during soundcheck typically where there's no one in this, in the, in the room, but the band and a few of the workers in the, of the building, even so being on that stage, and knowing that place is going to be full of people that that'll give you a certain energy that you won't, that will is hard to capture in a pure studio setting. Yeah. So that gave them kind of an edge sonically really. And they were lucky that they had Scott Lick working with them. Yeah. Scott Lick did the, um, uh, Nirvana's in utero album. Yep. Um, and he, I'm a, I'm a, uh, as an engineer, I'm a huge fan of his work just as far as sonically, um, also his, that his console selection for all you gear nerds, he, uh, he uses the old school, uh, analog Neve yep. consoles and they just sound so warm and just have so much personality and character. You can hear that, um, the two preamps are doing a great job. It just, it just really, really, really good job, especially for something that was probably captured, uh, multi-track off of a desk and then worked reamped or, worked later on yeah scott lit definitely definitely did a great job on this album well scott lit has worked for liz fair uh new order patty smith uh counting crows nirvana hall um and even people like ziggy marley you know it's yeah. it's it's an eclectic bunch and he he is cons- i mean he's he's again he is probably the best producer of the alternate music scene in the 90s at least yeah, definitely, and and all the all those acts would give him credence to the title alternative because he 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 kind of fits in every hole, if you will. Like yeah. he's he's a peg of every shape as far as a music producer goes. Very versatile. I don't, I don't want to say Spectre, but I mean it's it, it, but but you get what I'm saying. He's kind of like the equivalent of you know in the '60s if you needed a good stuff done, you'd call Spectre. If in, in the '90s you need some alternative stuff, you'd you'd call it. Okay, so he's like Spectre, but he's less murderery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Phil, Phil Spectre took out Kukupate. No, I'm just... Uh... <laughs> Damn it. But um, So as we go into this album, this was basically all written by R.E.M. Uh, the tracks were written by the band, and the lyrics were written by Michael Stipe. Uh, basically, he does vocals and everything. There's a lot of weird instruments on here. Um, yeah, yeah um, a lot of... Uh, um, extra percussion i noticed yeah like tambourines and um and stuff like that yeah there's definitely some layering and, and it's kind of makes it feel like more a studio album because yeah. of all the stuff that's going on so like because i i went into this album totally ignorant i didn't look up anything about this album i did a totally dry listen just 
as it was. And I could not tell that it was recorded live in any form or function. To me, I figured it was um, uh, an intentional filtering or presence approach to get because of the words hi-fi because that was something they threw around in the vinyl age yeah so i thought maybe that that was what they were going for for that vinyl warmth but when i heard that i was like wow that's that's absolutely brilliant yeah you've already got all your studio musicians or your touring musicians rather you know because there's there's lots of organ piano you know stuff going on yeah very very good uh instrumentation and i mean now that we i mean we know because it's our profession Right. Sure. And, um, you know, Michael Stipe did had to work in my, in my opinion, right. Michael Stipe had to work twice as hard to get his normal results working this. Um, because Michael Stipe is a very, very, he's a, he's a great singer, right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to doubt oh, yeah. it or whatever like that. But one of the advantages of being in the studio, as you, you know, and I know is you can double track or triple track. And yes. you don't get that opportunity out there on the road, which meant that his voice sounded just a little flatter than normal. Not much, but enough to enough for fans to notice because he's Michael Stipe. And obviously professionals who, who do this thing for a living to notice, it's just a little, little thinner than normal. You know, just a little, just a little off. Not much, but just enough to notice. And I mean... I don't know. You you can kind of tell it as well because it does have this does have several tracks that are recorded in the studio, and you can kind of match yeah. them together. And you can tell. Yeah, yeah. In, in that in that context, yes. But like going in dry when you just hit play, like I, yeah. I I listened to it three three or three times before the first attempt, and then now I've listened to it twice again since then. The first three times I did it without any information, like casual listening. And you, to me, I, I couldn't even tell, like, even on my good headphones. But then once you brought that to my attention and I started really critically looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, plain as day. And I think um, because of the fact that I noticed that it was, it was live, because I'd put it in my Winamp, I still use Winamp, and shuffle the songs. And it played. And I think the, I think I noticed it in uh, the song Leave, which we'll get to here in, in, in a few minutes, because that's a weird one to begin with. But that's when I noticed that. Hang on a minute. This sounds like it's live, because when you know when when you buy an album, you don't dive into how it was recorded, where it was recorded, or something like that. And yeah. this kind of you know this kind of of, of made me go, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so um, now we're gonna get in track by track, like we always do, right? When we when we look over an album. Um, <laughs> now, Michael Stipe is what I call a song teller. There's. That's a term coined by a British musician, Fran Healy, right? Uh, There are songwriters who just write a song and there are song tellers who write a story to music in in, in the guise of a song. Michael Stipe is a song teller as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Jim Morrison, I would think, is another one. Yeah. Um, uh, Freddie Mercury, maybe? Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's, on, he's, the so- on the songs he wrote, yes, but he there's okay. also a lot of songs that he didn't write for Queen that a song a song written. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, but I think I think those other two examples are good enough on their own. Yeah, I mean, like you know, Bono is a songwriter, and over the last right. twenty years, not a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but right. um, so what we're going to be talking about here is um, some notes that I found what Michael Stipe and the band said this song was about. 
as well as some fan theories. Because once a song goes into the into the fandom, the fans own it in terms of the meaning. Unless the meaning is specifically spelled out, the fans own the meaning. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna look at this album's fourteen tracks, which, in my opinion, is just a hair too long. It's got to be twelve. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I, I can get behind that. I think, um, you know, it, that was kind of the quick hit era. Yeah. Like um, the the three minute mark for radio, radio singles, like in the eighties, it was kind of five. Now, then they kind of got. It was like, hey, we can, we can. Uh, uh, do more, you know, if we can condense these songs into three minutes. So, well, you know, it's, 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 I mean, you've heard stories about bands who put a really long intro to a song and then they click a stopwatch and it's like after two minutes, like, okay, we, we really need to cut this intro off, you know? <laughs> so we've talked about how this album was recorded, right? So naturally we're going to start with the opening track, which was recorded in the studio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. This is a song called "How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us." Now, this yeah, this, about- yeah, this one's a cool one. It's uh, it's it's kind of uh, it doesn't really sound like REM when it starts off. No, but when when his voice kicks in, and you're yeah, you're deep in REM country. I mean, it's it's his traditional singing. You know, it's it's very very soft and low all the way through. You know, and that's that's a real real strength of michael stipe because he doesn't have to project his voice too much all the time he has a cutting a very cutting voice is the tones of his voice like i've noticed some people's voice just seems to cut through a crowd or through a mix better yeah uh, maynard from tool is one of those people as well his voice cuts right through the middle it's like he has a a natural charisma that he that he exerts through his voice some people are just born with it, man. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, any any pro singer like that is going to have to have a, a, a certain amount of that. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, this is going to start off a lot of themes on this album. One of the themes is, you know, the touring, the traveling, and also a lot of frustration, right? Yeah. And this song, I think, has frustration, like a stroke of bad luck, wrong place, wrong time. I mean two of his bandmates and himself ended up in hospital during the last tour. Yeah. It it could mean that. Um, Story is a sad one told many times. The story of my life in trying times. I mean, again, you know, his close friends have died. His bandmates almost died. It's like everything around him is like falling apart or like dying. Yeah. I, I mean, you could, you could understand why anyone would become inward after that, you know? And I think that one of the things that, that, that he did, I mean, you know, Michael Stipe's an artist. Let, let, let's not beat around the bush. He is an artist. Oh, yeah. Know? But he uses words instead of paintbrushes. And he, you know, he expressed himself very, very clearly in what he meant by this song, you know. And yeah. he's just, you know, it, it's it's really, really good. It's really, really got that, that kind of piano, uh, haunting, organ-y type sound. Yeah, Do- of, uh, kind of doorsy. Yes. I got a very Doors vibe from it, kind of the haunting kind of Yeah. Uh key not I mean not maybe not directly, but like you, I don't know. That you know, that you you can tell that, that that is what they were that sort of stuff they were growing up to that they were in that age group. So I mean a modern example for uh, would be uh, the Gorillas. Yeah. Oh, great great band and um this, they um yeah, they have a very similar sound um 
as far as like w- w- the sounds they're going for, but also like literally their sound. Yes. Like the, that warmth and that presence that um, it's interesting because they'll have like jazz elements, but it'll be like club tuned. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, like really, really deep bass, but then like a real soft kind of dry snare, you know, just so, yeah, you do see kind of, uh, on the notes here it says electronic quote unquote country. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah that's a, that's a perfect, uh, that's that. Yeah. For that track. Absolutely. And it's got, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's got like, it doesn't have a traditional beat, but it's one of those songs that you definitely, you know, you, you feel it, you're nodding your head to it. You, you know, the, yeah. the, bass, the bass line is, 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 I mean, we're going to be talking about a lot of the bass lines in, in this album, but I mean, it, it keeps you going. It's like, yeah. You know. It's groovy, yeah. Um, uh, Mills is really, yeah. He's really good at like, okay, as as a bass player, I I can totally comment on this because it's it's part of the core of what I strive for as a bass player, and that is to be able to write when I when I write or play lines, the bass line should be telling its own story, like yeah. it doing its own thing. And Mike Mills does that absolutely perfect on this album. Um, he he plays. Uh, extended range basses. He plays finger style. He plays slap. He plays pick. He does a little bit of funky. Does a little bit of groove. Does a little bit of swing. Does a little bit of yeah. He's really driving. He's really driving the car. I mean, he's really driving the car. Severely underrated. Oh yeah. I mean, he just sits in the mix so well. Like you hardly even notice he's there. But um, if you if you listen to some other tracks like um, what's the frequency, Kenneth. Yeah, where um, the guitars are just like just dun 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 dun. They're not doing anything really special. But if you listen to he's like really filling it up, and you don't even it just sits in there so well. Like I said, you just don't even it doesn't necessarily stand out so much, but it's making the whole song and every making it making everybody dance, which is the ultimate compliment to a bass player, by the way. And is dancing. If I may, if I start playing, people start dancing. I know I've done my job. And if if you if you dance into this one, then you've really done your job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sold it. Because I mean, it it is it is a slow song, you know. Yeah, it does, yeah. Have, it does have that vibe. Um, but we go from a kind of a slow sleeper, a little bit electronicy, a little bit funky, a little bit country, to straight up glam rock, right? And yeah. <laughs> it's called Wake Up Bomb. Yeah. And one of my favorite REM songs. I'll, I'll be completely honest, because I'm I'm a sucker for a glam track. I'm, yeah, I'm, it's. Yeah. To me, it's got some it's got some surfy elements too, though. In the beginning, the drums kind of like there's that little tom shuffle that kind of reminds me of. Yeah. But yeah, um, I think uh, I think there's elements of that. Uh, I think this is a one of those ones where he he pays a little homage to Bob Dylan yep. as well. Um, but that's I, you know I, I might be ignorant here because like I said, I'm not the hugest REM fan, which I think is actually a unique place to be when reviewing an album. Yeah. Because um, I don't really have an opinion in either direction. Um, but I, I'm beginning to feel like that Bob Dylan was just a good, a big influence on him. Period. Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely. I just, just, just my assert, assert, um, you know, what I ascertained from listening to this album a few times. So. Well, the thing is, it's almost by, it's almost autobiographical, right? Which is probably where the the glam stuff comes in, because if you're talking about your teenage years and you were a teenager in the '70s, a lot of that stuff is going to come out as disco and glam and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, Peter Buck gets the sound of his guitars right and and the feel of, of everything they wanted to do. And I mean, 
you're going to be hearing me say this phrase a lot during this, so I apologize. And I'm going to preface this with, I have bipolar, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat that or anything like that. This song is very, very bipolar-esque. It goes up and down to a high point to a low point. And now that's obviously not what bipolarism is, but it kind of, you know, it kind of, it kind of goes both ways. It's like dealing with two sides of the personality that a lot of bipolar people have not necessarily two faces, but like you have a, an energetic side and a, a depressive side, which is very, very, the opposite of energetic. I can't think for the life of me think of the word, uh, right? But um, lethargic, lethargic, yes, or yeah, just subdued. Yes, and this kind of plays to both sides of it, in my yeah. And this is not the first song that that that, that it's not the last song that does that. Excuse me, it is the first song that does it, but it's not going to be the last song that does it. Um, I mean, they had to say, they had to say that this song wasn't about anybody in particular because it does come across as very very anti-arrogance yeah i mean you know a lot of people thought it was about the band oasis Um, (laughs) yeah atomic supersonic what a joke i'm dumb see you don't want to be a lunch meat pond scum and i think people got hung up on the supersonic part because that was a song by oasis yeah Uh, it was also a basketball team so maybe they still like that basketball team there you go but i I just think that it's it's definitely about hating arrogant people but it's not laser focused into the people who people want it to be because i think everybody in the 90s wanted bands to be at each other's throats and i think at the time especially in the uk while bands were at each other's throats there were a lot more harmonious bands at the same time you know like a yeah. lot of, like a lot of the the dance scene in the uk and the indie scene in the uk kind of worked hand in hand for lack of a better term you know so yeah we go back in the studio real quick yeah. and um this is this i don't know how i feel about this song i like it and i don't like it because it's not mean-spirited it's in fact the opposite of mean-spirited but it's delivering in a mean-spirited kind of way if, if you understand what i mean yeah, I think if you do, um, someone who's not going to really look at this with an open mind is probably going to take it as um, uh, anti-religion. Yeah, you know, and some. But I think it's. I think I guess you could say that, but I think it's a little bit more deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, okay, this is a song called New Test Leper. Now, New Test, New Testament, Leper was a big leprosy was a big thing in the Bible. Yeah, that was the thing you watched time. out for. It was the COVID of the day. You see that and you run. Well, that yeah. the other the only the only thing about that though it was visible. You could see yes. it. That yeah. was the only that was the only the, the the leg up on that. But anyway, yeah, basically. Now the first lyric is, "I don't claim that I love Jesus. That would be a hollow claim. Judge not, lest ye be judged." What a beautiful refrain. What happened was right, and this this is a very very interesting story. They were in a hotel room. Uh, watching TV. Oh, Mike Stipe was in his hotel room watching TV. And this is from uh, Peter Buck. He said, and I quote, literally, Michael was watching one of those talk shows and I think the subject was people judge me by the way I look or something. Whereas I, when I have the misfortune to look at two minutes of one of those Oprah Geraldo things, I just get revolted at everyone concerned, the audience and me. Michael actually looked at this and felt, gosh, what if this person who was in this awful, tacky, degrading situation so it's written from that perspective. 
And I think probably having done press conferences in the past and being in those kinds of situations, there might be a little bit of empathy to the experience that we've had. So it's not talking about religion in the sense of, you know, worship and praise. It's talking about treating this person on this TV show like a leper, like they used to do in biblical times. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of that thing of, wow, you were picking on this kid or this woman or this adult or whatever on this TV show and you're throwing her out there like some goddamn freak show. Yeah. Like the 1800s Victorian era thing. And put a scarlet letter on her. Yeah. Chest. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so, I mean, you know, the, 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 the right wing evangelicals in, in America didn't like this, but at the same time, you know, it was considered a kick in the teeth of these mega churches. Yeah. I mean, as far as them, them jumping up to, do that you know uh, hey you know if the shoe fits wear it right <laughs> right so, and i mean you know if, if 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 i say something vague and you think it's about you then it's probably about you uh <laughs> well you know i mean like it, if the shoe fits wear it you know for yeah. real i mean it's if i, I don't know if, yeah, well, if somebody's got that subconsciously going so you know in some way obviously um, peter buck would say in q magazine he said that um, people are going to think that Michael is talking about himself not liking Jesus. I don't think people will take us that seriously. It's not like we're tearing up a picture of the Pope on TV. <laughs> yeah. I definitely remember that. That I think that totally probably ruined uh, Sinead O'Connor's career. career. Yeah, Sinead yeah. O'Connor's we were talking about. She did that. Was that SNL? She did that? I think it was. It was definitely it was a live TV show because they couldn't edit it out. Yeah, I think, yeah, so SNL would have been it then um because that's the demographic too for that time the 20 somethings would have been watching that um funny story i never got around to it but um we were we were rehearsing a sinead o'connor song for something i can't remember we didn't we couldn't quite get it to work for some reason um i think it was just the energy but anyways um my plan was when we did learn it i was going to tear up a picture of sinead o'connor at the end (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, it's nice. turn around, fair play. Right? Uh, nothing compares to you. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, next song is a song called Undertow, and this is. I mean, another- I think of Tool, the Tool singer. Yes. So I see it on my, I see it, and I get excited, and then I'm like, oh wait, never mind. This is a REM Undertow. So it's not going to be quite as ballsy. But, yeah. No, I mean, th- I mean, this is another one of these what I call bipolar songs. And this is the second song in a row where the subject of faith could be misinterpreted because a lot of people from in the fan base believe this is a song about either finding religion or finding atheism. Right. So, you know, um, it's very, very rocky and it's got some uh, it's got some great drums and bass at the beginning and then the lyrics kick in, then the band kicks in. Yeah, and, and they, they display really good um, dynamic use throughout the entire album, but especially in this one too. It, it, uh, it, they did do do a very very good job of there yeah um also the female vac- backing vocals are very very good the patty smith yeah. stuff that she added is just very very pleasant now patty smith would jump on the next uh, song too and this is a song called ebo the letter yeah now, i like this one this was recorded in the studio so you know it's it's gonna have a lot more production value to it but this song right here i mean even th- even 
That's my phone. That's a paddling. <laughs> uh, but even I'm gonna keep that in. But even you know, even now I'm talking about it. Right, I'm starting to get goosebumps of it. This is a song I've maybe listened to six times in my life, and there's a reason I've only listened to it six times. Um, and four of those times were researching this thing. This song is one of those songs that I can't listen to all the way because it's so haunting. It's so, um, you know, it's it's so deep sounding legato it's very legato yes there's a lot of there's a lot of very a lot of smoothness throughout it but there's also uh, a vibrato effect with this which is kind of choppiness so there's kind of a dichotomy going there yeah and i mean it's it's it uses an ebo and for people who are familiar with an ebo uh it's like it's an electronic vibration device that you yeah. use on a guitar that kind of gives you the sound of an actual physical bow that you hear on, say, a violin yeah. or a viola. It mimics it mimics the um, the vibration patterns that a bow would create because basically all it is uh, it's creates creates friction, which creates vibration, which creates sound at a, at a particular pitch depending on how. Yeah, so the ebow is basically just an electronic bow. Like you would see on an upright bass or a violin, just 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 yeah, um, popularized by uh, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. Actually, he was the guy that kind of made it a a, a thing that people wanted to get their hands on. I th- I've 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 used an ebo a couple of times, and I personally think it sounds best coming on an acoustic instrument. Don't ask me why. I that's just that's interesting. Um, I've never touched one. I've never had my hands on one. I've known about them for a long time. I've I've never even seen one. I've never had the opportunity to play one. Never, never. We we had one in in our old band back in the day, and um, it was it was good for the the, the things that we used it for. But uh, it just it, it seemed to me it looked like um, what's the best way to describe it. It looked like about the size of, of of a webcam, right? Of a modern day webcam. Not very big. Not very you know. It's like kind of curved. Yeah. So you yeah, can kind of hold it. Yeah. It, I mean, it looks like it looks kind of like this mouse I have right here, almost. Yes. Yes. And I mean, but a little not as. But yeah. Shrink it down about fifty percent, and, and that's yeah, yeah. I've got a vertical mouse, uh, yeah. Logi vertical mouse. If anyone's, you know, but look up that Ebo if anyone's interested. It's a really cool thing. I'd I'd love to play with one. And this song is written about River Phoenix, and yes. um, I mean, it's just this is kind of like the window into Michael Stipe's soul at this point in his life. I mean, he's saying things like, you know, my loss and here we go again. I mean, it's just because of the haunted nature of the song, I can't listen to it. And I've re- and I choose not to listen to it. Not because of anything in particular, but it's one of those songs that I have to, if I listen to it, I want it to have the, the same effect on me. Yeah. You might lose its meaning a little yeah. bit. You don't want to wear it out. Yeah. And I know that sounds yeah. silly because it's like, you know, a buried in a, in a, obscure rem album but i mean it's it's such a good song i recommend everybody to to listen to this song if you haven't listened to it yet go to youtube find it go to spotify whatever find it it is it it'll be well worth your time but it's it's a headphones yes it's headphones very- or some good good speakers good car stereo good studios yeah some, something good so you it's, can really listen to it it's a sad song but it's a very very good sad song it has some hopeful notes in it i'd yes. say um, it's like most of it's in, um, uh, it's in a minor key, but in the yeah. chorus, it resolves up to a major, which is kind of the minor for those out of the note is kind of the sad sounding chord. 
and the major is more like the happy sounding chord in layman's terms. Yeah. So there's there's a there's some slight subtleties that will show some, a, little, a little bit of hope. But other than that, yeah, I mean it's a very it's a very haunting song. It's got a very um, it's it's interesting. It's got the song has like a lumber to it, like a yeah. swing in a way. It's weird the the way it has a certain energy to it. It's definitely worth a listen. Now you mentioned uh, minor major chords. Um, yeah. Quick quick sidebar for a minute. I was watching a video a couple of days ago, and it was a guy playing uh, metal in a major key, and every single song, <laughs> every single song sounded like an REM song. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay yeah, because they they tend to uh, they tend to tend to stay in um, minor keys and then solo in like pentatonic uh, scales and stuff. Yeah, tend I mean, to tend to obviously. Yeah. Um, so we leave Ebo the letter, and we almost leave side one. <laughs> See what I'm doing yeah. there. Um, there you go. <laughs> the song is called Leave. This song is very, very weird for this album. Yeah, this uh, it doesn't the the two parts don't, in my opinion, don't really match up very no. well. They say basically it sounds like two separate songs being played at the same time. Well, but the, the with the lead in, oh yeah, the lead in as far as I'm saying. But then yeah, but then the, you have this quiet lead in, and then the the weird effect siren thing comes in. Yeah. And it's kind of annoying, kind of obnoxious at first, <laughs> but it, it lends itself well to the track once everything gets up and going and mixed. And I'll give that a lot of that to the mixing engineer and Scott Litt for getting that, achieving that balance, if you will. Now, this is this is this is a song. Like I said, I called it weird. I called it an outlier. This is probably my favorite song on the album. Yeah, it's um, really really good. The, the the what 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 Greg was talking about a minute ago, not to put words in his mouth. Like at the very beginning, it's like an acoustic introduction playing what would become the riff of the song with like a, a mellotron playing with it right it's very very yeah. soft very very mellow very slowered slowed down like probably half time or more than what the yeah and then all of a sudden at the ex at exactly one minute the drums kick in with just like a simple snare and then the siren sound goes off and like they whip the guitars out, they whip the Ebo back out. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, I don't want to say noise, but that's probably the best way I can describe it. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's almost like a, uh, it's a sample basically. They use yeah. it as a, as a, as a tech, as a audio texture, if you will. Um, I have a note on for this one over here. that says tambourines in my eyes. So I, <laughs> yeah. I guess they went pretty tambourine heavy on this one uh, to kind of drive it a little bit, but you see that throughout the album. There's there's a lot of um, alt percussion and uh, funky stuff like that. Yeah, and then um, and it's you know it starts off real morose, and then you can, then it goes to this like upbeat kind of like uh, driven rock, and um, the vocals are just Mike Stipe at his best at his yeah. at his prototypical form. Um, what you expect when you turn on the radio and hear Michael Stipe, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just real good. I mean, it's a seven-minute song, and they yeah, it's very long. Yeah, and I, I mentioned at the begin at the top of this that you know all of the 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 live sound might have kind of the production value is greater than live sound, but it kind of the overall sound they had to work a little bit harder to get what what would be REM standard. This yeah. takes full advantage of everything. 
Michael Stipe's voice is is almost perfect in this one. Um, yeah. Or it's perfect for Michael Stipe, I should say, because he has, he, like I said, we've, he's got a really, really great voice. The 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 expensive nature of the uh, arrangement and just that middle bit, right? When they're using the, the, the picks, scraping up and down the guitars and he's singing, yeah. he's singing it very, very haunted with the reverb and, you know, just just kind of does that, you know? And then you slap on the Ebo with it and Bill Berry's drumming that, that brings the energy back up. Yeah, I mean, this he was is, very okay, good at that. I mean, okay, it's called Leave. It's about leaving town, going to the next town. And, you know, the, the, the first half of this album did not have that. This is the high side, as they call it, H-I. And now we're moving to the fi side, which is more of the downbeat, hey, you know, we're leaving, we're on the road kind of thing. But, I mean, leave is, is probably the best way that they could have ended that this half of the album. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, especially if you're looking at it like side A, side B, it's a good end, end of side A. Yeah. Um, definitely. Definitely. And you know, it's, it's, it's one of those songs that could, that is either going to start or end an album, but we're still in the vinyl days. So it's kind of, you know, ending, ending that vinyl, shall we say? Yeah. The end of that side when that, and that, that was something that they, I think a lot of people took in consideration to, um, uh, almost like when you're putting acts to a play together, um, yeah. you think about how, you know, the story makes sense as a whole, but sometimes the, the segments and the parts need to be moved around and tweaked a little bit. So, um, I don't know if they took specific consideration of that, but I think it was a solid choice for their end of side a, if you will. And at the end of side a comes the beginning of side B or at least, you know, the, all you vinyl heads know what I'm talking about. I'm not a vinyl yeah. guy. I'm not a vinyl guy. Um, you know, to me, music is music. It doesn't matter if a good song's a good song. If Whether it's on a CD, a tape, uh, yeah. uh, MP3, whatever. I, I don't know who said that. It. it was it was a British musician. I can't remember who said it. It said if a song can't be, I think it was Paul Weller. He said if a song can't be played on a piano or an acoustic guitar and it sound good, then it's not a good song. Yeah, I, th- I think there's some. I think there's some merit to that, but uh, yeah. I mean, it's not. It's not 100% science, but you know, I, th- I think what he was saying is, is that a lot of things are not as simple, uh, are more complicated than they should be. Yeah, perhaps, or they rely on like non-musical elements too much, like the edge. Yeah, or um, like say, uh, uh, what's that newfangled techno thing? It's like, it's like, it's just like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm getting old. But, uh, yeah. It's like, it's like that. Uh, it's, it's, you couldn't, you couldn't play that song on a guitar. No. And so, I think and yeah. there's, there's videos going around on YouTube. Quickly jump into YouTube real quick. Videos going around on YouTube where the edge kind of has his whole rig set up and explains that, more that 90 percent of what he does is the effects box like he played the, he played the song elevation right so he play he plays the little riff and it's like you know it's going with all the effects the wow wow wow, wow and it sounds really really great and he yeah. says yes but this is but this is what would happen if i turned the effects off and he's literally strumming two chords once yeah <laughs> it's know? like oh yeah like the thing in um I think it's uh, where the streets have no name. He's got yeah. this like really long delay chain. Yeah. At the end, 
and it's it's like it's like off sounds all like lots yeah. of stuff's happening but it's really him just playing a one chord like picking, stri- picking each picking each note in a particular order in a particular time and and he but no, the, no nothing near that yeah but the time it has to be right otherwise it, it'll all go crazy is what he said yeah there's skill involved <laughs> i'm not i'm not saying he's no. like a, he's a hack or anything i'm just no, saying no, like no. it just it just it's a little bit of uh uh smoke and of hands yeah smoke and mirrors that kind yeah. of thing and, just a little bit and for the record i think the edge is a great guitarist it's just oh when, absolutely when you see behind the curtain it's like oh come on man you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved to a song called departure and this was again recorded live during a sound check and this is kind of like you know wake up bomb or you know something that could have been in in monster heavy guitars uh michael stipe's melody being erratic which is a hallmark of rem in in a good way you know i mean little attitude yeah and again it's another song about touring another song about traveling and it kind of looks at the things you'd see on the road as opposed to anything else like you know i want to say people watching but like car watching or you know town watching yeah. I mean, I, I know for, I know I have people ask me all the time, like, Oh man, it must be cool touring. You must see so, so many cool things. It's like, yep. The, um, the bar in a, in a bathroom and, um, you know, every Walmart from here all the way to Florida. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. Now we see some cool stuff for the most time, but there's, there's mental rigors to the road. Yeah. Um, you spend a lot of time sitting in cars. Uh, and then when you get to the venue, sometimes you, wait for hours before you perform so i mean there's a lot of mental rigors from the from the road definitely um but that and the the thing about that is um it's a sliding scale the more popular you get the 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 more demanding your schedule will get but also for the most part if you're doing it correctly the accommodations get better yeah for lack of a better term so um you know but even so like yeah but even so like 200 shows a year like i said um uh, that's really really tough that's like a show every three days or something like that yeah i, I remember when i was uh, when i was working with you guys and uh, you had the florida shows lined up at the keys yeah and like you were tell you were telling me about it uh about like the drive that you guys would have to take mm-hmm. and i remember saying thank god they didn't ask me to go with them yeah they, they were, <laughs> luckily luckily we only needed a driver for that one because they had an in-house um engineering to do all that but uh my, yeah that was my, like a 30-hour drive or something like that yeah. with gear i mean it was my, crazy my thing was yeah even if i if i was in a band that had to do a 30-hour drive no <laughs> i mean it's you know it's it's worth it in the shows everything like that but just the 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 logistics of you're going to be sitting in a, in a truck for 30 hours, you know, it's like, the people yeah, cause say, we didn't, we didn't stop the, re- we didn't like get a hotel. We, uh, our driver drove until he got tired. And then each, each person from the band switched out until we got there. Yeah. I mean, you just gotta, uh, sometimes it's, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the, the life of a musician though. I mean, you gotta, you gotta get out there and sometimes you gotta drive a little bit further than you want to. And, but you know, if you want, if you're serious about it and you want to do it, yeah. know, that's what you got to do. I mean, Lewis Black, the comedian Lewis Black, he once said that um, he didn't know if New Zealand was as beautiful a country as everybody made it out to be, because after 27 hours on a plane, anywhere would be beautiful. Yeah, on a plane, <laughs> I, on a plane, I could see that because in a car, you can at least like get out and you know catch your you know get some fresh air and like stretch your legs. But in a plane, yeah, I've never had more than like a six or seven hour plane ride, so. Yeah, those those are hell enough. But I mean, yeah. One of the things one of the things about this song is you know I mentioned plane rides and stuff like that. 
a lot of these lyrics were written by Michael Stipe as kind of a letter to River Phoenix while he's flying over some like very, very colorful and um, active cloud co- cloud coverage. Yeah. And this is kind of him writing a letter saying, hey, dude, you should have seen this. This was fantastic. You know? Oh, man, okay. I mean, he said um, in Mojo, he said that it was orange and lit up the entire sky. Everyone was asleep but me and presumably the pilots. It was seeing that and wanting to share it with my friend River, realizing that I'll never be able to reach out to him and tell him what it was like. So, you know, it's, it's hey, I'm on the road. Hey, this is, this is a great picturesque scene that I'm doing. This is something that I would have, I would have called you when yes. I landed to talk to you about or, you know, written to you or et cetera, or we'd talk about next time we met up at the Viper Room or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, again, it's, it's not pathetic sad, but it's sad sad. Yeah, no, it's sad. I mean, he obviously lost somebody important to him. Yeah, I mean, lost again, as we mentioned, two people of that most important to him. Um, Now, this is a weird song that we're going to talk about called Bittersweet Me, and not weird in terms of the song. Um, It was the second song that they used, and it was recorded during a sound check like everything else. The irony and the weird part about this song is it was recorded live. This song technically doesn't exist. Yeah, it's interesting (laughs) because they recorded it but they don't really play it. They don't play it live and it wasn't recorded in a studio. So yeah, this, this recording is the only proof that we have that bittersweet me exists. And that's, and that's a shame too, because um, I think this is, this is one of the best songs on the album. Oh yeah. Um, My favorite thing is the pre-chorus modulation they do. I think it's just so brilliantly planned out. Um, It shows, it shows to me that um, you can be a good songwriter without, playing a million notes yeah i think that i think that's a uh, there's a lot of bands that do a great job of that um chon dream theater you know they tons of notes tons of sweeps and all this really complicated stuff but it just goes to show you that just with good chord knowledge and knowing how to move around on the neck and knowing your singer's limitations and stuff like that um yeah and the, the lyrics too i love i love the metaphors that he yeah. presents. He's very, very, very powerful. Very good at that. Great song. This might, this is, I think this is my pick for this album, even though it's kind of like the single quote unquote, I still, yeah. I just, I just love it. It's a great song. Well, see, this song's kind of about um, something that somebody wants, but they don't know what they want. Not in a childish kind of way, but like. You're at a crossroads kind of yeah. like you, 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 there's something that you want. You just can't quite figure out what it is. Yeah. I can't put my finger on it. And I mean, he's yeah. also irritated by this. I mean, you know, it's about this song. I mean, it sounds like it's about wasting time and then kind of the guilt and the bitterness that follows that you've wasted the time that you have yeah. and you feel useless. You feel uninspired while you're not doing anything that causes a cycle. Again, this is very, very heavy bipolar impl- implications. Again, yeah. for the record, I'm not implying that anybody in REM has or has or does not have bipolar, and if they do, it's their business, not ours. It just right. in terms of the song, that's what's screaming out to me. You know, sure. I mean, like I'd sooner chew my leg off than be trapped in this. Yeah, I mean that's that's a hell of a that's desperation right there. Yeah, and I mean like, yeah, I mean, and then the chorus is like, I don't know what I'm hungry for. I don't know what I want anymore. Yeah, I mean he just it, it's I want to do something, but I don't know. Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be very defeating. I mean, yeah. Time. Um, we go to the next song, right? Which is um, a song called "Be Mine," and it's very, very. 
what's the best way to say this? Be Mine uh, is, Michael Slap said this is the creepiest song that he ever wrote. It's yeah, a lot this, of, yeah. It's, it's a lot of eyes. It's a lot of, you know, I will, I want, I want, I will, I should, you know, just, which is unusual for an REM song. This reminds me a lot of the magnetic fields. Okay. I don't, I don't, they're, they're, they're not very, yeah. very popular, but I guess you could say they're kind of indie like REM and they've been, they've been around just as long as them actually. But this, this, uh, they have thematic albums and they have an album called I, where every song is, has the word I in it. Like I die, I will like all these different things. So to see that, to see I will like that, and to hear him kind of, kind of, I don't know. I, it might it might be a pure coincidence, but I just as being a big fan of theirs, uh, I got magnetic fields vibes all day from this song. Well, it's also very, very like I said, it's very, very creepy. It's a love song to somebody. It's it's almost stalkerish, right? It's a love song to somebody who they don't know that I'm in love with you, kind of kind of deal. Yeah, and I mean. Um, I mean, this started off as a single track, single guitar, and then kind of, you know, expanded upon it as it, as it went out, you know? Yeah. Now there's, there's also one thing about this, this, this song that I love. There's a song, there's a, a, a TV show called Frontman, right? Uh, there was a TV show called Frontman okay. and it was kind of like wife swap in the sense that a band would swap singers with, uh, with another band <laughs> not that what? way uh, what? but uh you never seen wife swap yeah no i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with it but just i don't, I don't know the no. the internet's ruined my brain <laughs> it's not called stepsister swap um, <laughs> um but frontman basically they take a band and they'd switch out the lead singer with another band's lead singer and then you know basically they'd switch lead singers for this episode that, that I'm referencing. It was REM and Radiohead. Of course. Novel, novel idea. Yeah. And uh, this is the song that Tom York sung. So this See, I, song think is, that's, I think that's perfect though for Tom York. Yes. I mean, I mean this is creepy enough without Tom York singing. <laughs> right. <laughs> now for those interested, those REM fans interested, uh, Michael Stipe covered Lucky by Radiohead, which is an absolutely fantastic song. Huh. I mean, if you've never heard it, again, go look for it. Um, both bands, after listening to the respective versions, said that Lucky would have sounded better as an REM song, although I can't understand why. And um, <laughs> But Be Mine would have sounded better as a Radiohead song, and I can, I can see that. You yeah. Know, it's, it's, it's really, really weird. Um, it's weird. <laughs> but we go from the creepy side to the hush-hush side. Okay, um, song called Binky the Doormat, and it is a very sleazy, seedy, and filthy song. It it, it is. It's it's like James. It's like the album James. Uh, the album laid by James. Excuse me. You know that's an absolute filthy album. This is this would have belonged on. You know, it's a lot yeah. of a lot of frustration, a lot of sexual tension. Yeah, I sexual mean, references, uh, straight up like uh, sex straight up it's subtle and straight up references in that regard i mean you know there's there's high high levels of uh bdsm 
There's a boner joke in there. I'm just a little uh, acorn. While acorns grow into mighty trees. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And this mean- was recorded like an hour and a half from where I grew up, too, actually. <laughs> uh, in Phoenix, I, I grew up in uh, north North Tucson. I mean, it's, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. This this is just this this song creeps me out a little bit. If Ebo the letter makes me stand my, my my hair stand on end because of how emotional and how you know deep the song is, this one makes my hand hair stand on edges in the ugh. like. I feel like even now talking about, it, I feel like I need to go wash my hands. Yeah, this one's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds it sounds innocent enough when you start it, but then yeah, it's it I mean, weird. Then again, the fans think that it's it's about a clown on a cook binge. Okay, well, you know, I mean, you you know, you don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong, you know. <laughs> that, well, I mean, I mean, seriously, like I remember uh, I was reading an article from some musician. Somebody came up to him and was like, "Hey, is this song is about this?" Oh, it was Adam Adam Jones from Tool, the guitar player. So a fan came up to him and said, "Hey, is this song about?" A, this particular thing and he was like yeah you you figured it out good job and she was like oh awesome thanks and then the guy was like was it about that he's like no but she's not, <laughs> but she's not wrong yeah but she's not wrong that's her interpretation of it it's it's not wrong to her because she's had yeah. time to think about it sort it out so i'm not going to be the guy to crush somebody's perception of a song that they've ingrained yeah. time and experiences into their life to, I'm going to let them have their fun and, and tell them, yep, you figured it out. I'll tell them that every time. I mean, that, that's, that's what I said earlier. It's, it's all, you know, all songs belong to the, all songs belong to the fans after it's been released. If they're not clear about what the intentions are. They do, but that's, that's kind of the fun about it is because, yeah. you know, no one really knows exactly what they meant. And, you know, there's guys like Kurt Cobain who will, who, who, uh, vehemently, to 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 their last breath, literally, would said that some of their songs were about nothing at all. But some of them had references about his father not being a part of his life, and you know, I mean, some stuff that if he w- did do that that way, then he had subconscious help that he didn't even realize he had. Yeah, definitely. So I, mean, I think that maybe that's a maybe that's an element too, because obviously this is a man who's experienced some personal trauma. And yep. people all deal with trauma in different ways. And I mean, you know, that's that's the thing. That's Michael. That is Michael Stipe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean it's he. The, the, uh, the, he he could have done a, a, a less lot less productive arc if he wanted to, probably. So I, mean, I don't know. I don't know the whole entire story, but I mean, if he if, if a bunch of good art came out of it, then yeah, it could have been way worse, and, right? And, and I mean, you know, as you said, we can't tell people what a song is about. This song might be literally Michael Stipe throwing Scrabble tiles up against the wall and writing words that, that you know, that start with the letter of his Scrabble tile that hit the floor or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, the um, the family guy writing staff got involved. Yes. The, the manatees. Yes. <laughs> you think that's funny? Remember the time? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a really good American accent, man. I like that. Thank you. I've been, very, very good. I, I, I've worked on it the last three and three quarter years. Hopefully, oh, okay. I hopefully, I don't have to use it no more. So, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, look, I, I know, I know exactly what that's for. It's like, oh, hey, officer, where well, everything's fine here. We're doing right. Andy. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we're t- yeah. Anyway, so we're moving on from clowns on cockfield binges uh, to a song <laughs> called the- <laughs> Isn't that an instrument? I think it is. I mean, like the name, uh, you know. 
I'm trying know. to think. Is it that thing that like they use at the beginning of Lowrider? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, huh. Anyway, but yeah. Anyway, this is the instrumentals. Yeah. Um, on the album, which I thought was kind of a, kind of a, interesting choice for this for this album, and I still think that it might have been good to put it earlier in the album. Yeah. Um, I think it would have been a good side A end. Um, would leave. Yeah, or or leave and then and then that one have that be the end and then shift it down. But yeah, um, it's it's definitely an interesting one. Instrumentals, I think, are best either at the starting point, the midway point, or the end point. There's literally you can't put them anywhere else. You know. I agree with that. Yeah, because it's kind of like a palate cleanser. Yes. In a way. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, but it also goes with the touring theme, right? Because it does feel like like a beach type deal. You know. Yeah, it's very it, casual. It's very. You can picture the little Chill. colored drinks with the, with the little umbrellas and the fruit all around it, you know, yeah, and yeah. Like the tiki's and the, and the, like the, the, the complete blue clear water, you know, no wind, not a care in the world. I mean, it, it is very, very lazy. And, and the great thing about it is, is that they kind of played hot potato musically. Cause this doesn't feature yeah. Michael Stipe because there's no lyrics. It doesn't feature Michael Stipe. So like in this one, you've got Bill Barry, the drummer playing the bass. Mike Mills is playing organs. I mean, there's harps involved. <laughs> Just again, that's that kind of all relaxing. But I think they did that because of the next track. So, the, in terms of the track listing, because so fast, so numb is. I mean, for me, this is one of REM's most rockiest songs by by, yeah. REM, by REM standards. I mean, it's not going to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. For them, it's it's pretty 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 rocking. It's not Megadeth or anything like that. And no. it's kind of the narrator in this song seems really, really pissed off, just absolutely angry at the subjects he's, he's talking about. And a lot of fans claim and believe that this is another letter that he wrote to Kirk Cobain and River Phoenix. Yeah. And instead of it being, hey, lads, I miss you. I love you. This is more along the lines of how in the hell could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? Yeah, you know, you've let you've you've left me behind. I miss you. Yeah. Also, um, in this, I just now noticed this. Um, there, in this notation you have down here, mm-hmm. where it says "so fast, so numb," um, I believe that he is referencing um, Kurt's suicide note. Yeah, I believe that that is an allusion or a note mention of his suicide note because he he he. He says something about being so effing numb. Yeah. In his suicide letter, so I'm wondering if if those. It's just a two, reference. It might be because like he obviously he was very affected by him, but so I just now wrapped my head around that. I had him. I had a suicide note memorized at one point. Wow. I don't know. I was I was just <laughs> such a big. I was a big Cobain fan when I was a kid. And I mean, that's probably why it sounds as angry as it does, or at least again for REM standards. Uh, yeah. You know, he just he's he loves his friend. He's off that his friend is no longer with us and he's angry he's angry about how it happened how it went down you know and more kind of angry at himself too that like could i have done something to prevent this sure you know? and you know I, he had a very very close relationship with Cobain, like a very close relationship there were rumors going around they were loving yeah him. yeah um and and whether that was true or not 
I don't know, but Kurt was always a very open-minded guy when it came yeah. to sexuality and stuff like that. Like he didn't believe that. Yeah, that he he didn't, and I don't I don't know if he was as open-minded as I hear that Michael type was, but I know yeah. as far as like he was open to different orientations, and he didn't believe in mis- misogyny or um, discrimination of any type by anyone. So. He's uh, extremely would, live and let live. Yeah, yeah, very, very much, very, very libertarian of him. Um, but uh, yeah, so that w- that wouldn't surprise me. But at the same time, I, I don't, I don't really, I, 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 I don't think, think there's enough to substantiate it. No. Truly, I mean, and it's, only- uh, it's it's supposed to be just uh, so, uh, rumors that uh, were started. You know, to discredit so. a lot of Cookabain's friends, like rumors about Dave Grohl, rumors about yeah, I, I don't believe it's true. I, I really don't. But I mean, a lot Probably of our, a lot of REM fans seem to believe that this this theory, in the sense of, hey, I'm this angry because you know someone I was very close to, has gone. But they also believe, well, this could have been made up by people trying to discredit Cookabain. It's very 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 weird. But I thought it was you know there was enough out there. To at least mention it, but I, I personally, sure. I, I think it's, I think it's bullshit myself. It's, um, it sounds like flimsy at best, but yeah. you know. But I mean, again, it's just the, the, the anger and the venom coming out of his voice and the lyrics. You know, it's just, it's like witnessing two old friends who fell out have that one last argument before they become friendly again. Yeah. You know. Totally. So, um, we're gonna move on to happier climates. Um, this is this, this is the road song. This is the happy, not happier country song. You know, um, it's called Low Desert. Um, it does sound like a '90s country song, which um, it goes against it for a start. Um, <laughs> but it's know. that it's that indie element again because yeah. now you've got you've got um, in like stone cold indie bands like the December yep. and stuff like that uh, that are that are putting folk and country elements into into alternative uh, slash indie. i mean i don't even know what like I, what does alternative mean anymore because when yeah. i was a when i was a teenager alternative was like the pixies and like nirvana and stone it, temple pilots and Soundgarden. you know what i mean they, they were grunge but like alternative was like its own little orb that encompassed grunge encompassed and like a few other sub series i guess it was chronological i don't know anymore i mean but, i mean it's like i said earlier it's it's i think alt, alt, they call it alternative because nowadays i guess they call it adult contemporary oh god you know? that, that just that, that just makes yeah me but i mean it's just it's i i, I always took it to it's not pop music yeah, yeah, pop, it's, pop it's music is popular music. Yeah, sure, but but grunge was very popular for a while there. So true, uh, but uh, I don't but know. It started as an alternative movement, but you know, it did. It started underground, and then it became it became viable. So it became alternative. It became its own umbrella. So basically, that was anything that wasn't normally mainstream, or because remember in the '90s, at the end of the '90s, we were like still in the tail end of the hair rock. And yeah. glam rock studio stadium rock era so there was all these people trying to differentiate themselves from that era and that's how we got grunge yeah was from people wanted to do something like they they were kirk Cobain was tired of thinking that he had to play like ingve malmsteam to be in a band yeah you know just going back to the 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 thing before with rem how on bittersweet me really good chord progressions. The song was well-written. You can play, write a good song without writing a ton of notes. Yep. And that's what the grunge era represented basically was 
you, you, you know, you can be angry, have something to say and get an instrument and go out there and do it. Yeah. But yeah, they, um, they definitely had the beginnings of what we see now as the indie sound, Yeah. which can encompass this sort of folky kind of country element almost. Well, see, he's, he's thing too, because it was like, it was written about going from town to town to town, right? And so it's got a lot of imagery of car crashing and driving and stuff like that. Yeah. Because REM have always been a touring band. I mean, they've influenced so many people in so many different parts of the country, you know? So when I say that they're, they're like the godfathers of alternative music, I mean, they were taking, you know, picking sounds and mandolins and, you know, acoustic guitars and stuff to places that were still here in hair metal, actually stuff before hair metal. You know, I mean, this was still in the, in terms of rock music, this was still the early punk, new wave. Electronic wave. Yeah. 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 The British pop explosion. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. The guitar, the guitar rock era hadn't even started yet. And that's that. And like I was mentioned before, that band, the magnetic fields, they were starting right in the middle of this too, doing their own thing, completely different. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of cool that they, even back then they weren't, um, they, you know, they stayed true to who they were. They didn't become a hair metal band or something. No. <laughs> Imagine that REM, like, hair metal like, band? Sounding like, like a skid row or something. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try to, I'm trying to ma- imagine the uh, vocal, the vocal style for that, but uh, yeah. Oh my word. Uh, I just, I just can't, I just can't imagine uh, Peter Buck like with, with the chick dancing on the hood of the car playing his mandolin. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> dude's, dude's over there with the Guiro, like, you know, with Aquanet and you know, there's like fire behind him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna we're gonna end this uh, very 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 weird weird uh, walk in Michael Stipe's psyche with uh, a song called Electrolyte. This was the final line of the album, the final song of the album. Excuse me. Um, no, this the uh, Guiro is the is the instrument we were talking about earlier, not a Yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they went. They did that a lot in this album, like uh, tambourines, and they they really went all out with that. Yeah, and I mean, this song is is kind of like uh, "Night Swimming," which was on "Automatic for the People." Um, it's a very very piano based song. It's kind of a come down. Yeah, and this is basically Michael Stipe people watching. Huh. He went to uh, he he lived out in L.A. and he went to Mulholland Drive, which, from my understanding, is like the big, you know. The, the 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 big part of LA where a lot of people go and and you know it's it's, it's a busy like uh foot foot traffic yes. area yeah and uh so you know he just he'd go to people watch I mean he wrote the song after a trip to Mulholland Drive uh, after the earthquake in 1994 when his his home was damaged you know yeah. so he had nothing to do get, while he was getting his house fixed he wasn't going into the studio he wasn't touring so he'd just go people watch. Michael Stipe said in an essay that Mulholland represents to me the iconic from on high vantage point looking down at L.A. and the valley at night when the lights are all sparkling and the city looks like it does from a plane, like a blanket of fine lights, all shimmering and solid. I really wanted to write a farewell song to the 20th century. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it was it was imminent. I mean, yeah. I mean, you got the 90s had a lot of bands who wrote their, uh, you know, their uh, millennium song. Right. And. 
you know, it's one of the lyrics, 20th century, go to sleep really deep. We don't blink. I mean, yeah, um, Anthem for the year 2000 by Silverchair, case yeah. in point. Um, blue Written end of the century. 97, yeah, 97, 96, I think. Yeah, blue end of the century, 1993. I mean, you know, it's just everyone was looking forward to. Uh, gorillas. Yeah. yeah, song something. 19, stuff. Yeah. And I know that came out in like 2003, but Damon Albarn wrote the the basis of that song in 1999. Huh, I didn't know it came out that later, though. Huh, okay. Yeah, well, it still, it still works, though. So. Yeah, but I mean, he, he wrote it before the millennium. That's why it's called 192000 because he didn't have a title for it and it was written, you know. But I mean, even then, the. Um, the idea of this big new thing, the 20th century is over. We're going into the new thing. All the years are going to end up, are going to start with two zero. Y2K is coming, you know, it's going to be better for everyone. Yeah. In a year and a half, it wasn't. It's the same. It was nothing. I mean, everybody thought like something big was going to happen. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people thought that something big was going to happen in 2000. And it was just exactly the same as 1999. It wasn't really the 2000s until like 2003. Yeah. And it's usually the same with certain decades too. I mean, it's just, yeah. I remember I was 16 when all that happened. And I remember all the nonsense that people thought, you know? Yeah. I remember that too. I played a prank on my, um, on my uh, girlfriend at the times family. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I had some friends cut the power like right at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It almost worked. It was, it was fun. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of REM fans think this is about alien abduction. Uh, that's tenuous at best. Sorry if you believe that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, um, I think there, there's a lot of claims of alien um, sightings out in California. True, and I, th- I think a lot of that has to do with um, the uh, pollution in the air. Yeah, like people think they see things that aren't but there, but it's just like you know a bird flying through all the smog. Yeah, or like some light from something hits it. You know, and reflects some swamp gas off of Venus. <laughs> and that weak ass story is the worst you can come up with. Uh, <laughs> um, the last line on this album, I mean, sums it all up. Sums up the whole album. Sums up, you know, it, it's not defiant. It's not lackluster. It's literally, I'm not scared. I'm out of here. Mic drop. Yeah. He's yes. like, like, we're done. We're done here. You know? And for me, this is a nine out of ten album. Nine out of ten all day long. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd give it a nine, nine point five. Um, I, I enjoyed it very much. I think it's it says it's deep. It has a lot to say. The there's lots of different textures from each musician. I mean, it's just yeah, very very heartfelt and just very good. Very diverse. Michael Stipe's lyrical nonsensical is weaved. You know, I mean, it's very vulnerable. There's a lot of you know emotion raw emotion into this you know and just it's life on the road i mean it, it just it, it's it's a hard one to explain it's a hard one to explain but yeah i think it's a fantastic album if you've not listened to it go ahead and do so because you'll see what we're all talking about unfortunately because of licensing issues we can't play anything from it so you yes. have to take our word for it but you know it is what it is man it has been completely awesome having you on once again for the sure. second, this is the third attempt uh, that we've tried to record this. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> we got it this time, hopefully. So. Yeah, we've got it this time. Uh, it's going to be fun to edit. All right, so we're going to be back here in a few minutes where we talk about uh, some of the stuff that we've got coming up, which is including me growing the mustaches and the mullets and update on live streams and everything else yes. that we've got going involved. And Greg, it's been awesome, man. And we'll be back here in about five minutes or so. Peace. All right, we've got a few more minutes before we get out of here. Thanks again for taking the time to spend your day with us. It's been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, special thanks to uh, Greg for coming on once again. Uh, this is, as I mentioned, this was the third time that we actually got stuff recorded because of corruption issues and then crunch issues, then corruption and crunch issues. So it was a heck of a time getting this done. But man, I think we got it through. Uh, if you want to follow Greg, go ahead, check out theholodex.com. They're currently dormant right now because of the coronavirus and everything like that. But keep up to date with, you know, what, what they've got going on. They've got clips and stuff all around and of course if you want to see greg play some uh, old video games go to twitch.tv slash vintage underscore eyes that way you'll see him you know doing the dead game and stuff as well uh this week on our youtube channel uh you can find our final three episodes of our odd world walkthrough man it's been uh it's been quite a time, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we've got episodes 11 and 12 this coming Tuesday and Thursday. And, of course, our special season finale live stream on Saturday, November 21st at 2 p.m. That's where we finish Oddworld Abe's Odyssey before moving on to bigger and better things. And because that means we're a week away from this, we are two weeks away from our charity live stream of FIFA, the Road to World Cup 98, where we are doing a charity stream, trying to raise money for the Movember Foundation. I am glow glowing i am growing a glorious mustache and of course we are going to take it one step further in the month of december i'm going to shave my head into a form of a mullet and we're going to keep trying to get donations as much as we can because movember foundation is a fantastic charity um i recommend if you haven't donated to them to donate to them guys if you're listening check out the boys and if you were feeling sad and want to talk to somebody for the love of god talk to somebody it's it's not less manly to do that okay and of course ladies if there is a man in your life, husband, brother, boyfriend, father, etc., friend, get them to check themselves out as well. Get them to make sure that they're doing okay, because it's okay not to be okay. And, you know, we need to remove the stigma around uh, men's mental health. And, of course, try and make sure that uh, bottle cancer does not take men younger than they need to be. Okay? And that's what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to be playing at, in two weeks' time, excuse me. We're just going to have a little bit of fun, play FIFA 98, try and raise some donations, and do whatever we can. That's going to become a yearly tradition here on the Because Movie Network. Last year we did uh, New and Tasty, which didn't go all too well. Um, as I mentioned before, it was not long after I'd left the hospital, and I was still very, very emotionally shook up after my uh, hospital visit last year. But I'm doing a lot better this year. I've done a lot of streams this year. I've ironed up the kinks of my software I'm going to have some fun. We're going to have some fun. And I'm going to take Wales to the World Cup final. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's what it is. Next week, uh, I'm going to be doing a half solo show 
Um, I'm going to be doing uh, Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Strikes Back. Um, I'm going to be going over all the details and all the information of that wonderful, wonderful game. Then I'm going to be joined by a very, very small special guest to go through some of the things that uh, they found quirky and exciting about it and answer some questions and so on and so forth. If you want a taste of what that going to be like check out our youtube channel and check out our archives look for extra extra episode one that's where i had my kid on here and we talked about marion luigi that was three years ago he's he's grown since then i mean he's bigger than i am right now and i'm i'm yeah so uh <laughs> that's what we're gonna have here next week and of course in the weeks up ahead we've got um after that we've only got uh two more episodes after that so we you know we're closing in on the end of the season and then of course we've got um our christmas specials and new year special coming up at the end of december but um i'll more information on those as they come about but in the meantime thank you very very much for uh taking your time out today to listen to us and don't forget to check out facebook twitter tumblr and instagram look up because movie network check out our website at because and of course check us out on apple podcast spotify podbean iHeartRadio, stitcher radio tune in and Podchaser, if you, you know, if this is not where you usually listen to podcasts. We'll be back here next week. And I hope you have a good week. See you guys. Thank you.